that actually it's another super powerful and important element of belly dance that it puts everyone in contact with what you consider the edge of being, let's say, what's acceptable. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This is so exciting! Jelena's Ballad Dance Evolution is debuting their latest production, The Jungle Book, this March in Hanover, Germany, starring Luna, Shannon D'Souza, Kater, Kapua, and Jelena. You can see exclusive behind-the-scenes footage, interview with the cast, and learn about joining the BDA cast by following Ballad Dance Evolution on Facebook and Instagram. Hello everyone, how are you doing? You're listening to the Baladance Life podcast episode number 112. And this one is gonna be tricky, <laughs> tricky but super excited and super thrilled because I am interviewing in this episode my husband, Pedro Bonato. Some of you may know him as a drummer and uh, maybe have seen him at some ballet dance competitions or even performed uh, to his uh, drumming at some event or again competition. Some of you may know him as a photographer who works a lot with uh, ballet dancers too and uh, maybe even did some photos of you guys. <laughs> and some of you may know him as a behind-the-scenes man who uh, helps me running all these projects together. So it's not only the partner, but partner in crime and work too. Pedro Bonato is a fine art and advertising photographer, uh, born in Brazil and now based between Toronto, Canada and Kyiv, Ukraine. His uh, works were published in El Arabia, Fashion Canada and a number of uh, other magazines and books, as well as he exhibited his work in uh, uh, several galleries in Canada and Brazil. Also, he is known uh, in the ballet dance photography world. He is known for fine art project The Orientalist, featuring dancers and musicians in the scenes inspired by Orientalist paintings, which we definitely are gonna uh, talk about in uh, this episode. As I mentioned, he also closely works with uh, ballet dancers and he photographed a number of stars including Aida Bogomolova, Khaled Mahmoud, Marta Korzun, Julia Farid and many, many, many other dancers. Along with the photography and his uh, solo drumming <laughs> focus, uh, Pedro is also the leader of the world uh, music and dance ensemble, uh, The Blue Dot, and uh, he's the host of uh, two podcasts, The Wanderings podcast and Daily uh, Walks uh, podcast, which uh, features his uh, 
various interests in uh, many different subjects that inspire his photos as well as uh, featuring some uh, uh, daily life of artists and uh, uh, challenges and uh, things that we encounter as we pursue our artistic goals as well as trying to figure out day-to-day -day, uh, living. I will definitely include all links in the show notes. There were a lot of projects that we didn't uh, talk in details on this podcast, but <laughs> something tells me that uh, this was not our last interview. Actually, I was uh, this idea of this uh, interview was in my mind for a very long time, but I was kind of felt like, ah, it's maybe not time, not time, and I was sort of pushing it away, but I knew I will have to bring them on the podcast uh, because uh, it it's uh, quite an interesting and unique uh, position to be in, to be a drummer, to be a photographer who works with dancers, and also being married to a ballet dancer. It's always interesting to hear the perspective of other people who are with us dancers in this field, but they are not dancers themselves, and they, they kind of see it from a side, from the side, but at the same time, we they are in it too. So. As you probably guessed, we talked not only about uh, music and photography stuff, although he gave so many interesting like tips and stories for dancers on that subject too, but we also were talking about just life in general and relationships and uh, uh, possible struggles and conflicts that dancers may experience with their partners or in general the attitude of not only general public to the subject of ballet dance and to ballet dance as a profession, but what is kind of going on inside the ballet dance world and uh, I really loved uh, hearing those insights because uh, it's always interesting to see the perspective of person who kind of looks uh, on all this stuff what's going on but since not actively participating in it or not being a part of it as a dancer it really gives a different interesting uh, point of view so I'm pretty sure this interview will uh, challenge <laughs> some of your thoughts or, and ideas, so get ready for that, but also absolutely get ready for a lot of laughs. This was one of our probably longest interview on the podcast, and I was actually debating if I should keep it as a one episode or split into two, but at the same time I thought, you know, it was indeed a two-hour conversation, and I wanted to give you uh, this more, let's say, authentic experience, as if you are literally sitting with us in the room and chatting all together. So I decided to keep it as one, and uh, by the way, let me know for the future, uh, I would really actually love to hear hear your opinion on this uh, for any longer sort of a little bit longer episodes do you prefer to keep them as a one uh, from beginning till the end of conversation in one episode or you kind of feel like you would prefer to split it into two this is a little practical note but <laughs> i would really appreciate uh, hearing uh, from you on that and now without any further delays uh please welcome on our show for the first time as a guest but great support to this project from the very very beginning and also my style that this is a sort of tech tech guy <laughs> for this uh, podcast our Belladance Life podcast that's for sure so uh, additional thank you also uh, for uh, supporting even this project too but anyway now without any further delays let's dive right into it Okay, that's gonna be a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we'll see how we'll manage uh, today my uh, skills of interviewing people mm-hmm. <laughs> by talking to, to actually to you, to my husband. Right away, can, uh, should say I cannot promise that I will not ask questions about your private life. <laughs> <laughs> so get ready. Um, I will plead the fifth. I'll say no comment. Oh, I, I know you can take it. <laughs> um, but uh, I would love to start from the very beginning. So can you please tell us, our listeners, how did uh, you interact with Baladins for the very first time that you saw it first time, what you thought about it and uh, all the jazz? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it would be interesting saying this because uh, like you probably know a lot of what I'm going to, to say, but maybe there will be some mysteries <laughs> revealed in the process. But to take to the very beginning of the my like relationship with the belly dance, and to be clear, you're probably going to do an intro. I am not a dancer, uh, except in specific contexts. I'm sure we'll get to it. <laughs> but well, so uh, the first time that I saw belly dance was totally by accident. I was 23, and my friend Caruso, that is like long-term friend from a long, long, long time, like since high school, we've been actually even from like primary school, we were friends. And uh, he was dating a girl that was doing belly dance classes. And this is back in Brazil in a city called Curitiba in the south, where I lived most of my youth. And uh, he said uh, there was at this Italian restaurant called Toscana, there was Arabic nights. Yeah. That's how it goes, in Italian <laughs> restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it's like, and it's, it was like, I remember it was sort of like this, I won't say cheesy, but it's like, it's more of this old, old, old style restaurant where like the young people would not usually go. You usually go there with your parents, right? But we were like in our 20s and we were starting to, like with girlfriends going out, pretending to be adults and going out on dinner dates and all that. And he was dating this girl that was doing belly dance. And her teacher was performing at this restaurant and there was like Arabic nights. And then he said, okay, might as well go. Let's uh, check it out. And then we went to see the show. And just to put it in context, I had done like music training a little bit. I studied piano for like one or two years when I was like about 14, 15. And music was always like in my mind, but I never really pursued it. I was like, I had just finished an advertising degree, I was studying, I think, physics back then, I was doing all sorts of like other things, but I I remember at that time I was very frustrated with basically pop music and the music that was available for like for us in general. It was like, oh, this 4-4 four, four beats is always the same, like I was in that mode. Mm-hmm. And then I found out, it was right when... I was starting to get into swing music, like uh, sort of like um, jazz, right? Uh, this like very uplifting and cool beats mm-hmm. and different. And then I got into this band called Afro-Celt Sound System that they do electronic music, but then they do it mixed with African music and Celt music, like by Celt, it's like uh, Northern European music. Mm -hmm. And they did these cool transitions and fusions that I had never seen before. And I was fascinated with that kind of stuff. And I was like sort of searching for music that was different. Mm -hmm. But that I didn't know I would find anything on 
this funny night on this uh, thing that to me was kind of funny. Uh, like, oh, belly dance, I had no relationship with it. I knew it had been featured in a soap opera, Brazilian one, that later on I found out, like, Oclone, that is so important for belly dancers all over the world, but I was completely oblivious about it. And what happened was that we went to see the show, and they had a live band. And on the live band, I saw this guy, and he was playing this drum that I had never seen before. I have seen hand drums before, like djembe's or congas, of course, like in Brazilian culture, we have a lot of hand drums. But I had never seen someone put a drum, and that really caught my attention. He put on his lap, sideways. And I thought, huh, that's kind of strange, but that, that could be cool. And as the, I was trying to pay attention to, to the dancers and to like see the whole vibe, and I was thinking, huh, this music sounds almost out of tune. That's how I thought about it. So it was like, huh, he goes to this strange, like, now I know what they are, but to me there was like, he goes into this like beautiful music, but it seems a bit off, what's going on? And I saw what he was doing with the drum. It was, of course, a darbuka, a tabla. And I remember I looked, looked like he has 40 fingers because he's playing so fast and doing all these crazy rhythms. And I was thinking, okay, one thing that I do all the time with music back then was like, okay, let me count. Let me count the beats. Let me see what, try to understand what he's doing. Of course, I hadn't a ghost of a chance of knowing that he was going from Wahda to Malfouf to like to some Iraqi beats. He was going all over the place because he was doing traditional music. He was singing like uh, Um Kothum and all sorts of like uh, and Feiruz and all sorts of uh, interesting songs. And then I was fascinated. That's how it began. I was like, I, I could not take my eyes out of him. And what happened was that you had like, we had sort of like um, a table that was a bit higher in the, there was like a dance floor. So we were like the first level after the dance floor. So I had a clear view to him. And I should mention that his name is Shakir Akiki. He is a Lebanese singer and drummer. And he had just moved like a couple of years before to Brazil. And I remember watching that. And then the dancers would go in front and do veils and do all sorts of things. And I'm like, Look, get out of the way. Let me see what he's doing with the drum. Let, let me see. So that long story somewhat shortened. That was my first uh, experience with um, seeing belly dance and listening to Arabic music. Then there was like an intermission. And... Uh, I, he go, he was, I think he was going to the washroom or something, and I caught him like in the middle of the dance floor. And then I told him, like, oh, this is so cool, looks like you have 40 fingers, all that. And then uh, I said, oh, what's the name of this drum? And then he says, oh, Derbaque, because that's how they say it, uh, like with the Lebanese accent, let's say. And in Portuguese, in Brazil, usually call it Derbaque, we don't mm -hmm. call it Darbuca or Tabla. And then um, I said, oh, you're going to teach me that. It was so spontaneous. And then he says, yes, yes, sure, of course. And then I said, with a very like thick Brazilian accent, like because he was just learning Portuguese. I said, no, 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 you are going to teach me this. And from that, then we just enjoyed the night. Like the, they got like the dancers came to the, like that I now know is traditional dancers went to the tables and they started dancing with us. And uh, my friend's uh, girlfriend uh, started dancing too. And it was like a lot of fun. And I sort of like got hooked by the music. To be fair, I was not really interested in the dance aspect of it, like by then, but the music really caught me. Mm. What do you think was uh, uh, 
that characteristic in the music, like you mentioned that it was different from what you heard uh, before. Uh, now, like having actual experience of being a drummer yourself and looking back on those times, what do you think was the most real, that characteristic, that most fascinating, that hooked you to to go really for drumming and stick with it for so many years? Hmm. It's very hard to know, like because of our, the way our memories work, we sort of like recreate what's going on in our in our minds. So it's very hard to know exactly how we thought, but. To me, considering what I mentioned, that I was trying to searching for music that was different, that I could not predict, mm. right? I could not predict. Uh, I was trying to find that. And with pop music and with uh, even rock and roll, like after you, you, you get into it, into it for a while, you sort of, and you like, especially in, like in Brazil that we have the same of like, oh, we know we listen to Brazilian like popular music. And then you listen to a lot of rock and roll, especially from the US and from uh, from Britain, we get, you sort of know what's going to happen. You know where the chorus is going to be. You know where the riffs are going to be. You know where there's going to be a break. You know that there's going to be this introduction. Like, you sort of know what, it, what to expect. And I got bored of it. With Arabic music, I remember that I was trying to understand what was going on and I could not figure it out. And that, I think, is the first thing that caught me. Like, hmm, I cannot figure it out. I don't know what's going on. At the same time, a lot of things are somewhat unpredictable, like uh, jazz music, for example, or sometimes even um, classical music. But in this case, I think in probably the most, the thing that got me the most as well was the different instruments that appeared. There's like, I remember canoon and I remember violin being played in a different way. And I remember there was like, in the, as I mentioned, like this thing of like this music being almost off, but it was not off because it was part, I could see that it was part of a structure. Then later on, I would discover that the Arabic scales, the makamat, they are different, but they have these patterns, right? Mm -hmm. They have this structure. And once you get your ears used to it, it becomes the most beautiful thing. So I remember having, it had this sense of mystery that I think it's still today, I, I feel the same way. It has this, um, it had this sense of like change in tempo and change in the emotion that is carried even from one bar to another. I remember, oh, it goes to all these places and it has this moments of quiet and then it has this moments of like intensity and then it has this strange stops in, uh, in strange places. And then it had the... I think the, the thing that got me the most, especially with the drum, because like that's for the music in general, but with the drum specifically, was so many sounds that you could take with this drum. Mm. So it sounded like this small little thing that looked like a table, sorry, <laughs> looks like a chair. And how many times I had people actually that don't know Arabic music go and sit on my drums. This has happened many <laughs> times. But it was the sounds and the amount of... The other thing, like now that I like, think about it, I thought it was so interesting that you had like in piano, for example, you can have like the, let's say the right hand that plays the more high pitch sounds. You have the melody. Usually, of course, mm -hmm. you can have melody on the on the on the bass notes on the left hand. But this one was completely flipped. Right. You have the usual unless you are right left handed, but you have the right hand doing the low pitch sounds in general and all the ornamentation being done on the left hand in a very non-intuitive way mm -hmm. 
And all those things, I thought, oh, there is so much here. There is so much interesting mm -hmm. things. And then I went to see, like, oh, this is like a super old style kind of um, uh, drum that has been used for thousands of years, a variation of it. And I saw how rich the music was. So I think that's what hooked me in the beginning. And then, of course, I know this is the Belly Dance Live podcast. And you'll get to when I actually started getting interested in the belly dance aspect of it. But back then I thought, okay, because I was interested in the drum, so these dancers are in front of it and I wanted to see the drum. But I thought at the same time, I thought, oh, it's interesting because it's a kind of music that is intrinsically related to dance, unlike any others that I knew of. Like you have like tango that has tango dance or you have any like things that I've seen before, but this seemed to be a conversation between the musicians and the dancer, even though I couldn't see that and I was not really into that, but I could see that it was something different. That it was not something very, at least to my knowledge, very common. Mm. You know? But it's also uh, specific of with Arabic drumming. It's also interesting feature that the music and the style of drumming and the behavior of a drumming will be even different if he just plays the music or if he plays for dancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the things that, of course, I only knew much much mm -hmm. after right so just to take what happened like right after was that as i told him like oh i want to to learn how to drum from you and he was like new to 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 brazil and i don't think he was giving any classes like really so i really basically harassed him for, for a couple of uh, weeks until we decided that okay we arranged like a time and we arranged to start drumming and then the cool thing is that there was this store that had just opened in Curitiba called Mundo Egipcio, which means uh, Egyptian world. And he took me there and he chose uh, my first drum there, like he helped me choose. And he was like really picky and uh, like seeing like the doom sounds and the tech sounds and he was seeing the shape and this and that. So he was really like going through all the drums and seeing like how the rim is mm -hmm. and uh, really, really cool. And then I got like my, my first little like drum and then uh, we started having classes. Right, so that took me a few months of complete immersion with just trying to learn it, and then basically it started the whole thing. Mm. And uh, when did you start working with dancers? Was it back in Brazil, or was it already then you no. moving fast forward, moved to Canada? <laughs> right, so I haven't played for dancers at all uh, until I moved to Canada, mm -hmm. but that's many, many, many years later. What happened was, so this is, I was, as I mentioned, I was 23, so I started learning the drum and I was really into like learning how to play it and the, at least the first few years until I went to Canada, so I don't know which year that is, but it's basically seven years before I went to, to Canada. This was like, I could not say that I was like practicing, practicing, practicing. Mm -hmm. I was like really into it for a few months or a couple of years, I guess, in Curitiba. And then I... Um, what happened was that I was walking into the store and I listened to the song and it was uh, right when they started like new age music. It was like really in the hype of it. And I remember there was started playing the song with Amer like English speaking lyrics, this beautiful like female voice, super angelic. And it was sort of like an Irish tune because I knew the song, but they put, huh, this beat, this beat sounds like uh, Maxum, huh? This sound, oh, this drum is actually, there is a darbuka here, because I could hear like the high-pitched sounds of the left hand. There is a darbuka here. 
Oh, what's this other instrument that has a very uh, characteristic string instrument? And that was the oud. And that was a song by Lorena McKennett when she did this, uh, I think it's the Book of Secrets, the name of the CD. I can't remember the name, but we'll check mm -hmm. for show notes. But on that CD, she started incorporating, by chance that year, the music from the Middle East into this Irish tunes. And I was listening to it, and then I bought the CD, and then I started listening to it, and I started like trying to play with it together, right? So with that, I actually went to... I still was watching whenever my my teacher, Shakara Kiki, he was playing, I would go watch him. And uh, so, but I would never play. And usually what I would do is like, okay, he's playing for the dancer, like in a restaurant setting, for example. So I'm paying attention to what he is uh, doing for the dancer, but I'm really not really focusing on the playing for dancers aspect yet. I was looking into the music. And then I went to live in Brasilia for uh, for a while, and they lived there for four years. Brazil is the capital of Brazil, and back then I was not even working actually as a photographer. I was, uh, or even a musician for that matter, I was a public employee with the Brazilian government, right? And uh, what happened was that there was one restaurant that had uh, Mahmoud, and he is the first Darbuka player in Brazil, this oh. Egyptian guy. And he had this restaurant, and then... At some point during the, the evening, he would get dancers to come and dance, like with recorded music, but then he would come out. And in, in Brasilia, the cool thing is that the restaurants are sort of like, there is the part that is inside, but they always have a patio because it never rains there and it's always hot. So they had this Sounds patio. like a dream city <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, um, well, well, maybe we'll get to that. But it's like it's a very cool city in many aspects. And that was one of them. So it's like you have this patio and then you're sitting there and you're eating this beautiful, amazing food like Chanclish that I think I introduced you to it. But we were like eating that. And then I was watching him. And he had this drum solos that he was doing for the dancers. And it was just him. So it was different than what I've seen with Shocker that was like sometimes more musicians or mm -hmm. like a more of a show. And this was like, like shorter, smaller. And then I was like, all oh, these dancers. And then I started paying attention to what he was doing. I did a couple of classes with him, but I was not still into the belly dance world. And there were like two reasons for that. The first reason is that as most dancers know that just like there is like jealousy from husbands of belly dancers that have dancers go do belly dance, there is the other way around too. So you can imagine like uh, like in th that that time like my partner she was like very let's say worried about oh, being around dancers and all those things. So I was not even really looking for like learning to play anything for dancers. It was not really my thing. But one thing that happened was uh, Mahmoud was going to play. At Dalila Lopez School, which is uh, Dalila Lopez, a like Brazilian dancer, very cool one in Bra in Brasilia, and I wanted to go see. So then I wanted to see, and I watched her dancing, and I, it was the first time that I paid attention mm. to a dancer because she came into the room, and I remember that she looked at the audience as sort of like this. Not a bow, but like this introduction that now to me it's like obvious what dancers are doing. Like, oh, you come in, you do your entrance, like with a veil and this and that. And I remember she was coming in and she owned the room. It was the first time a dancer had really caught my eye. I was like, oh, okay, that's what the art is about. Like, okay, let me take you on this journey. And that's how I felt when I watched her dancing. Mm. 
And I thought, oh, I get it. Okay, that's the appeal of dance for dancers and for, like, I was looking around, like, all these people with their eyes, like, laser-focused on her. And she had this thing of, like, very graceful and very nice, and uh, she was not trying to be, to show off. And it was this combination of sensuality with a very, very posed. So it was, like, very posed, not posed, very dignified. Mm. And that combination of, like, raw with intellectual that you see in dance, that's, okay, cool, that, okay, you got me, right? Mm. So, again, sorry for the long answer, but that's where it started, right? It's like, okay, I'll pay attention to what dancers are doing, Mm -hmm. but I never felt, oh, I'm just, like, an amateur drummer, I'll never be able to do anything. And um, just to put a little thing, I don't know if you know this one, but there was one time that... Whenever it rained in Brasilia, which was not very often... But what do you it, mean? You just said it never rained. <laughs> exactly. But if it did, two, three times a year, like there's like a season where it rains a lot, but all the rest is super dry. But I remember whenever it rained, because the infrastructure is not that nicely done, lights go out. Mm. And I remember this was two years before I went to Canada. So I was playing drums, I would play with my friends, like we would mix Brazilian music with me playing the drum, and they play guitar and those things in parties, those kinds of things, but never for dancers. But I had this thing, like, of uh, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was like this public servant that didn't want to be in the government, and I was trying to come up with the idea of doing like a master's abroad. And then I was thinking of, um, oh, maybe one day I can like even learn how to do this drumming, because it's taking so much of my attention, I may be able to to learn this. But this night, the lights went off and it was for the whole night. I was alone at home and it was like pouring rain and I had a couple of candles. And then I thought, okay, I did this list that was like this exercise that I go back to it from year to year, not every year, but from time to time, whenever I feel inclined to. And that it was like, write 75 things you want to do, big or small, doesn't matter. So I started writing it down. And the cool thing about this exercise is the first 30 will be interesting. Then you have, you will not know what to write. Then you start writing nonsense. I want a Ferrari. I want to have a patent. I want to direct a movie or everything. Like you can, can consider that it's impossible. And then you start doing things that are, the way it at least happened to me, very honest. Like, and those are the interesting ones at the end. And one of the things that happened then that I wrote was play for a world-class dancer. That was something that I wrote. And of course, it was in the middle of write a book, start my own band, be an internationally famous photographer, have my own exhibit, like all sorts of things that I was putting on this uh, 75 things to have. And this is at the time that you were not even an artist. You were not pursuing an artistic career at that time. No, I was... um, Uh And my interests were completely different back then. It was more like... I was always interested in art because I even was like an actor when I was a kid. I was always artistic. but And I always loved photography. But I, it was never like... I let me create this art form. It was not there when I was in my mid to late 20s. And I was really interested in like science and art and, and design and some things like that. But I was not really into becoming like a musician or a photographer per se. Not really. And then I, I wrote it down and then just life happened for a couple of years. And then I found myself moving to Canada. Uh, so I took a leave of absence from my work in Brazil. Again, I was uh, working in Brazilian government. 
which it was well-paid job. I had the job security and all those things. Like it was nice in a way, but I was dying inside. It was not uh, interesting at all in terms of work. It was so hard to do anything that was meaningful, mm-hmm. right? And this is a little bit of a side note, but I remember the only thing I could do that I was really proud of was to make sure that this book was published. Like it was the scientist. She wrote a book, like a hundred reasons to be a scientist. It was an adaptation of a book from, I think a French writer. I can't remember who he was, but then she goes and she interviews a bunch of Brazilian scientists. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to create a book for kids to inspire them to be scientists. And being like in the communications department of the Ministry of Science and Technology, where I was, it was so hard to do any work that is meaningful. It was always like either some political agenda or some sort of like, in my opinion, nonsense use of public money. But then I was like, at that point, I was in a position in the work that I said, you know what, I'm getting out of this, I'm going to go study, but I really want to do at least one contribution, one thing. So I really fought to have this book published and it was like 8,000 copies of the book for like a buck each, which was super cheap for what the impact it could have. And then we shipped it to this, uh, basically a yearly uh, science meeting that happens in Brazil for uh, science popularization things. And then I shipped it to, to that, uh, place to the to the city where it's going to be, and then it was uh, delivered to like eight thousand like schools and like and kids and stuff. And I remember like I was sitting, and then I was like I started crying, and then I thought, okay, at least I did something in this four years working in the in the government, right? So um, then like shortly after that, I moved to Toronto in Canada, and the cool thing that as you know well, like having lived in Toronto, was that there's so much to do and learn. And you can learn with the people that are top at their fields, in at least in music. And there I found this guy called um, Suleiman Warwar, that is, in my opinion, one of the best drummers, like certainly the best in Canada, and uh, one of the best I've ever met. So creative and so good. And uh, there, that was at Arabesque Dance Company and Orchestra. And that was where I, sorry, these are such long answers, but, <laughs> but like that's where I started having classes. And it was funny because he, I started taking classes and then I started in the beginner class because I don't know what the level of the people are. And then he goes, uh, you can go to the intermediate advanced class. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then I went to the intermediate advanced class thinking, oh, they're going to kick my ass. I'm going to be this uh, like imposter. And there was actually one of the better students in class. And then uh, even a few months later, uh, Suleiman said, can you learn this solo, like to back up for the solo? And then he said, and then I said, yeah, yeah, I can. And then I learned how to back him up, like in a very difficult uh, drum solo that he did called, I think it was Majnun, that it means like crazy, right? And then that was my first playing for dancers. It was playing for with Suleiman in 2009 in uh, for these dancers at mm-hmm. the uh, Four Seasons Hotel, like had just uh, Four Seasons Center for the Arts in Toronto. And then uh, I still even have the photo of us like uh, doing that. And then, then of course, I started paying attention to what, really paying attention to what dancers were doing. And that started the journey of playing for dancers. Mm. But the reason why I loved your story and uh, it was... Uh, a little side tangent yes. <laughs> to answer, but the reason, like, uh, then I was thinking to invite you to the podcast, like, you first of all, you have very 
Interesting combination related to the ballet dance world. You're a drummer playing for dancers, you're a photographer often working with dancers, and on top of everything, you're a husband of ballet dancer. <laughs> so it's like that mix. But also why I loved your story, it kind of... Uh, it has so many like little moments and meanings uh, in your story and it's such a great example of uh, how world is interesting and uh, how it puts all dots together at the end if you just follow your into again you can call it intuition or your inner call or your just uh, like area of interest uh, because for instance your list uh, that you mentioned uh, a list um, of 100 things that you would love to do in life you were writing it not even considering even closely to become drama photographer artist in any way and then you had on your list or oh, become uh, play for world-class dancers which you did quite a few <laughs> times yeah. already for many various dancers and uh, put like, oh, I want to have uh, my own music band and you actually do have it right now. Mm-hmm. Who knew back then? And then even your story of listening uh, to Lorena McKennett, uh song and uh, paying attention to the instruments that she used uh, in her uh, album, like the new album and album. <laughs> and... Uh, Later discovering, uh, actually, in Toronto, meeting the guy who actually inspired her and put all those instruments in the arrangement of her songs, Middle Eastern instruments, and just later, years after and after, actually meeting this guy in person who got your attention in the Middle Eastern music from that perspective and even collaborating with him, actually doing yeah, a show yeah. in his venue. It, it's it's really interesting. So it's a lot of side tangents, but it's like that magic, I guess, of artistic light and you actually follow what you feel you want and what you believe in and then uh, how interesting it twists and puts all the ends together and like uh, uh, just believing in your dreams, even if it's believing unconsciously, but just trusting, mm-hmm. like trusting and doing things and going after them. Yeah, like for me, it's so it's very strange to... I remember just like now this uh, quote from a uh, commencement address from uh, Steve Jobs, right? The like CEO, now dead, of uh, Apple, that he said that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots moving, like looking backwards, right? And at least uh, to me, like as, as, I, as uh, I was talking about this list of things to do, they were... The exercise that I was doing back then was more of like to try to unlock your interests because my problem was, and I thought that was a complete curse back then, was now it's just annoying, but <laughs> uh, it's, I had so many interests, like I, from like astronomy to drawing to comic books to directing movies to like making board games, like there's nothing that does not interest me. Right, I have this thing that it's like if you think that something is not interesting, it's because you haven't looked deeply enough. Like I remember even a friend of mine saying, oh, it's like watching paint dry, right? It's this expression in English, like something boring. And then I was thinking, mm, if you put it on a microscope, it will actually, and speed it up, it will actually be fascinating, right? <laughs> and uh, there's all these things that you can think about it. So I always thought that it was a curse because I couldn't, I would always like start doing something and... I would get to a certain level. I would learn very quickly the basics of that thing. And then I would stop and then I would find something else to fall in love with. And then I would start learning that thing. So then you would become a master of none, basically a beginner at all those things. 
But the funny thing with drumming specifically is that even though for a long time drumming was like a side interest for me, when I came to Toronto, it was I was doing a master's and my interest was actually in design, in art and science. It was not necessarily anything related to music or even photography for that matter. But I kept going to the classes every week, no matter what, I would go to classes because I wanted to learn this and it was difficult. I got to those plateaus where, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. Then you start playing, then you start doing, and there were these um, gala shows, right? So I, I got into playing for, for Suleiman as a backup drummer right away in this like one-off show. But then I remember a couple of months later, there was a gala show in uh, the fall, and we had to learn a drum solo. It was like a group class, so we had like four or five of us. And each one of us would do a section of the drum solo, but you would need to do learn the whole thing, right? So it was one of the first drum solos that... It's called Bassam drum solo. It's like a famous one. It was the first drum solo that I learned. But drumming, coming back to it all the time and getting better at drumming and having all these small wins. Okay, I went to stage. I performed. My hands were so like shaky and uh, as many dancers have like that panic before shows, drummer have it, have, drummers have it too. Uh, and in the case of drummers, you still have these other problems that if you don't do anything, there's silence. And silence is terrifying when you're a musician. So if you make a mistake, it will be loud and it will be obvious. So even as a way of doing this as a way to conquer your inner self and trying to, okay, I'll do this. I'll do this to the best that I can, even though my hands are like sweaty and I'm not used to like doing things and you go and practice and you can do it perfectly, but then you go with nerves on stage and it's so difficult and it's never as good as you practiced, which was so annoying to me. But it's funny because so many dancers are terrified by drummers and like, oh my God, this is the master, this is the, the God, and, yeah. and oh my God, how am I going to dance to him and he's so amazing. And then hearing that actually as a drummer, you also can have a, a little panic attacks before going on stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we talk about like, I guess, uh, interaction of uh, dancers and drummers but I guess we can get into this a little bit now but this, so this is basically beginning of my training so like many 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 years later like I guess eight years after that like looking in perspective and seeing all the dancers that I had the opportunity to to play for and also talking to dancers especially if they know me in the context of photography and I'm sure we're going to talk about that too but in the context of photography and then sometimes I ask them what's their impressions of drummers and thing, their relationships with uh, drummers on stage. And they always told me like, oh, how they were like very, they were like so worried about, oh, being around this drummer or playing for them or dancing for them because they are these masters that know everything and all that. And then I was like, huh, no, that's not the case. And the other thing that dancers, I always tell them whenever like we do like uh, workshops for dancers, I always remind them like, the drummers, they are artists too, and they are people as well. And they have their own securities. And I was when they started talking to me, their frustrations with drummers, it's when I saw, ah, that's where the drummers are showing their insecurities, and the dancers can't even see it. For example. For example, when the drummer, the dancer goes on stage, and if you're listening and you are a dancer and you danced for a live drummer. You probably saw him looking either at his drum 
or looking to the side, uh, you can't really see me right now, but you probably can picture this. The drummer is, the, the dancer is in center stage and the drummer is looking down to his drum and doing all these complicated things and doing this like he's doing all these things on the on the drum he's not even looking at the dancer sounds familiar right so like and they're telling me like oh he's not even looking at me or like they the guys would not do four phrases they would do two phrases or three phrases or it would not be the same or suddenly they do something and uh, they go into the next phrase and then what the, the dancer is expecting like the, those rules of drum solo that you do four times the phrase and you left the dancer hanging and she has to <laughs> do this little like smile and try to to dance so I started paying attention to what the dr drummers were doing and I saw, oh, that's from their insecurities because they're going to be, let's say, judged or at least they think they will be judged by other drummers and they want to really showcase how fast they can play and how they can do all these cool, crazy phrases and beats. So you are disguising your security in trying to be super difficult and complicated. And then dancers think that they are not being good enough or that, oh, I couldn't catch what he was doing, right? And sometimes, sometimes the, the, the drummer is really good and the dancer is not that good. And then it's that dynamic doesn't Different work. Story, yeah. But many times the drummer really doesn't know what he's doing. And he is, as I mentioned, this, he can play all cool as he wants. But if he makes a mistake, it will be clear that it's his mistake. For Unless, people who know about this role. Yes, yes, yeah. for people who know. And that's the other thing too. It's like, even for sometimes, I remember doing drum solos that I thought was disastrous. And I came to, and then dancers came and said, oh, thank you so much. It was so great. And uh, it was awesome. And the best, like the best compliment I ever got for, for drumming mm. was actually one time I was drumming for you. And at, as you mentioned briefly, when we went to this place by... Dona Kun, 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 like uh, the guy that uh, is like the arranger for the, the for Lorena Mechanic, right, and we was playing. We were playing at his uh, venue, and it was the throwaway party for the venue. It was the last performance, and I was doing a drum solo that I one of my first drum solos that I created for you. And I remember on the audience there was another drummer that I love, Nachme. And she's a Persian girl that does, she plays tombak, which is, let's say, a cousin of the darbuka in Persian culture. It's a different kind of drum, but she plays darbuka as well. And she is world class. She's really good. And I was so nervous to play in front of her because I was thinking, like, my technique is good, but it's not as fast or as precise or as hers. And I remember that right after the show, she came to talk to me and I was like very, uh, what is she going to say? Like, and she's a great girl, like great musician, good friend and everything. But back then we were not like, we're just acquaintances. And she said, oh, I asked her, so what do you think of the drum, of, of the drum solo? And then she said, oh, I loved it because you really took care of her, like of the dancer, right? In the case it was you. And then I was like, oh, I never really thought of it that way on purpose, but it was something that... Over time, because I knew how drummers would do, like, or they would get into patterns, okay, this drummer always does this because that's what he knows how to do, so he'll always go in that direction. Or he's super show-off, but he doesn't have your back as a fellow, like, artist, right? Or he is using his, let's say, mastery or seniority to disguise them, or to pretend that he is, like, this big 
like big shot and he knows everything about dance and giving ideas to dancers about, oh, you should do this, you should do that. Or you didn't catch the accent that I did and all those things. It's like, no, it's your job as a drummer to make the dancer look her best because people are there to see her. She is the visual representation of the music. So I always thought, okay, take care of her. And I think I learned that actually from like, we're going to sidetrack a little bit as usual, but from me being a photographer, when I decided that I wanted to become a photographer and I was doing my master's, probably go back to that later, but I became fairly often a guy that would take a lot of photos of ballet dancers for their portfolios or then on my fine art series and all those things. So me as a photographer, it's my job to make the dancer look the best that she can, basically to capture the beauty that it's there, that it's her, right? That's that's my job. So if the photo comes out bad, it's my responsibility. And I thought that same rule applied for music. It's my job to catch you. It's my job to see, okay, she is super tired. I'm not gonna throw a thousand tremolos for her. Or she really wants to show off and do kicks and really do challenging things. Let me step up my drumming game and really go wild with her energy, right? So anyway, that's... So it's not even about like really catching because some dancers also go to other extremes and misunderstand. Or oh, the drummer need to compose his drum solo on spot according to uh, how my hips move. <laughs> right. That's not the case too, but it's about like catching the mood and uh, trying to get in tune and actually caring about uh, dancer too and providing the framework. Because I also performed with many drummers and uh, I know that many dancers who performed with you, especially on uh, improvisations, they... Uh, they do acknowledge that it's very easy, or it's way easier to dance t- with you, uh, with your music, rather than uh, in their <laughs> other experiences. Uh, because um, also, there are so many things that uh, you, you just brought up, and I was like, oh my god, that's so even funny to hear about uh, drummers' insecurity and trying to show off in front of other drummers, or even in front of imaginary drummers <laughs> and uh, making uh, life hard for dancers. And we have the same analogy for dance. So many dancers, they have no problems of performing for like at the gig, at some party, but when they know there are dancers in the audience that may understand or, or God forbid, judge them, it just makes it so tense and nervous. And it's just funny to hear exactly the same as you're describing for dan- for musicians. Uh, but I also uh, kind of uh, also want to add something and twist because sometimes it does come from insecurities. I bet it's probably the case. But it often also probably comes from not even knowing that what you're supposed to do. Because a lot of drummers today, especially non-Arabic drummers or who trained with non-Arabic but trained by themselves or trained in uh, Western countries from whatever resources they could, they were trained mostly like a musicians without understanding that being a musician is probably different than being a musician with a dancer. So then you're not a soloist. None of none of the dancer is not a soloist and not even a drummer is a soloist in this case. So it's a duet. Even if it's one dance and one playing music, but it's a collaboration, it's a duet and it has to be a mutual exchange of like energy and ideas and thoughts. And uh, that's basically what, what you were describing. Yeah, and uh, like just to make it like a, like clear in the drummer's world, right? Like you have basically three situations that are very distinct 
that happened with a drummer that is working with dancers, but it's basically playing Arabic music. You can play classical music, then you can play a nice samai or like those religious tunes and all those things. Like in those songs, sometimes you even not use the darbuka because it's not traditional to play darbuka. You'll get the rick or a frame drum or like bandir or like whatever other drums. Some kind of tambourine or frame drum. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, that had nothing to do with uh, dance in principle. So it's more about the music and even that context... The drum is not center stage. It's an accompaniment. It's an embellishment. It's keeping tempo. There is all this. um, It's in a classical music context. Then you have the drummer as part of a band. And when the drummer is part of a band, you have the music, you have the singer, you have all whatever instruments happen to be there. And you have the, let's say, solo part inside the music. Right? So you have like a whole show, so you have a section that will have a drum solo, for example. And then you have, which I believe is a more recent thing, to have a drummer go and do drum solos for dancers or have music that is specifically drum solos. That's fairly new, I assume, like it probably has, what, 50 years, maybe, I don't know, 100. But it's not, maybe I'm wrong with the historical aspect, but it's in any case a different So you have these three things. You have, let's say, purely music, music with dance, but in the context of a band, and then the drummer and his backup, if he has Mm -hmm. that, right? And I mention this because this makes the drummer... Some drummers are very good. They're like, let's say, music drummers, as sometimes they call. Like, it's like, oh, you're really good at playing and doing, like, accents and improvising and doing things inside the context of the band, but maybe you are not the, that good with drum solos. And the other guys, they're really, really good at drum solos because they really focus on that part. And whenever they play with bands, they are not that creative or they're just keeping the tempo. Or even worse, when they try to apply the same mentality of, let's say, take the spotlight to them as a drummer. When you have, a mu- when you have music, the Arabic music playing, and then you have the drummer there trying to do all sorts of like crazy things. When the singer is singing, for example, it's not your time, right? So my point is there are different skills that the drummer can have. And the beautiful thing that happens with belly dance, just to tie it back to be not just music talk, but one of the main things that I think is beautiful about Arabic music, and I think it's unlike any other that I know of, it's a worldwide phenomenon. There is, even though we all recognize the Middle East as the source of this art form, It's practiced from Eastern Europe to China, to Japan, to the United States, to Brazil, everywhere. There is people that are sometimes creating their own versions of uh, belly dance and everybody, let's say, dances or plays with their accent, right? But they are all getting that from that thing. So it's beautiful that there are, like, as you were saying, like musicians that were, let's say, trained as musicians or trained as, like, say, a kid drummer in a band and then they go into Arabic music instead of being, like, in a way, my, my case. I was not born into this culture. But so sometimes it's very hard to know uh, what to do, right? Because there is not many resources. Like, I was very lucky that I was able to have world-class training with very cool drummers from the beginning of my training. But I know a lot of guys, they just watched YouTube videos and they learned a little bit. And then this dancer asked them, oh, can you play for me? And then they sort of like, it's a trial by fire kind of a thing. So they go and they do the best they can. And that's where a lot of the, the security comes to, right? So I think for a drummer, the main 
thing that you can do is to try to absorb as much as you can of the culture and the this interaction with dancers so that you can do a great job for them at least that's how i see it i think like if the drummer takes the the spotlight and he becomes the the big part of the event i mean it's fine but uh, to me it's like you take away from from the dancer on stage if you're trying to be the fluffy person or at least you're not trying to make the dancer be comfortable and trying to do it but that's that's just my opinion it's not mm-hmm. like there's no fast rule about that it's just mm-hmm. how i see it uh you will mention that uh, ballet dance is quite a world phenomenon and related to ballet dance it's also related music to ballet dance at the same time Uh, you probably encountered uh, countless occasions that people were surprised why you suddenly, Brazilian guy, (laughs) uh, not only got interested in Arabic music, but actually uh, became made it part of your like uh, artistic and professional life <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, well it's something that i know a lot of dancers get all the time right uh, you certainly did like oh why is this person from this country learning the using doing the music of this other country or oh why do you like so much arabic music that's one of the things that people do oh are you the descendant of arabs like do you have that in your lineage and i always tell people well my family it's i was born in brazil third fourth generation from like immigrants that went to brazil in the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century and they are germans italians spanish people and uh, portuguese at least that's what i know of the people that came from my uh, great grandfathers right in principle unless there is some resemblance like some thing from spain that have some uh, blood that is related to to the Middle East, like. But do you think it's even relative that but we that's have the, the yeah, blood? We'll, we'll get there. Like so, I always tell people like, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what you love. And why would the place where you were born determine what you like? To me, I mean, in the beginning, I always thought. Now there's a lot of more like, let's say, political tensions in the world that talk about cultural appropriation and all those kinds of things, but. The way that I always saw, I always always puzzled that people were like, oh, but why are you into like uh, Arabic music? And I'm like, well, I just love it. I'm just into it. And if I knew exactly why I like it, I would probably fall out of love with it. Because part of the thing is like, I'm trying to explore, like there is something there. And I think, well, as you know, I think a lot of things about that, but about that subject. But it to me always sounded odd that you would consider where you're from as either a badge of honor or a permission to explore the art that was developed somewhere else. And the way that I came to think of it over time is that just like we all, in biological terms, in evolutionary terms, came from Africa, right? You always have a common ancestor that decided to walk out of the savanna and go around the world, which is what we have now, there is this re-encounter that is happening now with us, right? It's like I'm a Brazilian guy, you're a Ukrainian uh, person, and we are together, and there's nothing to do with our nationality, right? It's like love knows no frontiers, or it shouldn't. And I think it never crossed my mind, right? And I know that for some cultures, it's like, oh, you'll have to be uh, even when you love someone, you have to be with the person from this specific village. There's like arranged marriages and all those kinds of things. But I think culture 
belongs to everyone in the world. And if we try to compartmentalize, it's when real conflict starts and even worse. There is this concept in economics that if I have something, let's say I have a pen and you have a cup, but I want a cup and you want a pen. If we exchange, the level of richness in this small system has risen because I have what I want and you have what you want. Is the basis of trade. And I believe the basis of trade applies to culture. If I fall in love with this Arabic drum, let's say, where did this come from? This Arab, like this, uh, this love, I have no idea. And if you think that, oh, I should only like the stuff that is from my uh, forefathers, how far does it go? Is it one generation? Is it two, two generations? For example, just to give an example to people in, um, in Arabic music context, if you listen to Bin al by uh, Firuz, the original recording, not, not the original recording, but a very famous one, it has congas, it has like sort of, a, 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 I don't know if the, that song specifically, but it has instruments that are from South America, for example. Or people now trying to incorporate uh, cajon, for example, which was developed in uh, Peru. And now it's going to Spain or going to even Arabic music. People started using that kind of instrument. Or why would that be a problem to mix those things? And even in something that people say now is super traditional Arabic music, there was already fusion there. And I remember talking to this guy. I should give him credit because he's the one that said it the first time that I listened. I don't know if it's his idea, but Amir Ali, he was one of the cultural directors of the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. We were talking about this, like people were saying, oh, this music's from this place or this music's from that place. But you look at the instrument and, oh, there was an invasion coming from that place and they brought this instrument that now is a part of that culture. So if you go back and you go back and you go back, it's always a mix. Mm -hmm. And what he said was the only thing pure is the mixture. And I thought it was a beautiful idea and I decided to devote a very good part of my life both in photography and in music and we'll probably get to that. That's how I feel about it. It's like the world culture is one world culture and of course you're going to be influenced by the place where you're born or the places where you have your deepest like memories and roots and all those things. Of course it's going to influence you. I only knew that after moving from Brazil because I was not really into Brazilian music until I got out of it and then a lot of like nostalgic things started coming back and a lot of things that people appreciate in Brazilian music I would find it in other places even drum solos that people use like samba beats is a very common thing now would that be a problem oh this Arabic person cannot play Brazilian music come on it's a uh, it's silliness the way that I see it it's uh, just again people with their fears and with sometimes even good intentions right like even the people that talk about cultural appropriation all those things their hearts is in the right place we should not take advantage of other other cultures for sure at the same time we should take as human beings the best there is from all the world and we should share that beauty and share that all the culture and i think that sharing is creating and will create all the beautiful things that we see. Mm. Yeah, this topic is very sensitive for many people, and uh, in general it's sensitive, and uh, the term cultural appropriation in general it has such a bad connotation and bad meaning, but we sometimes overlook that it may have some benefits too if you just twist it. If instead of thinking like cultural appropriation as a bad thing, you just think about cultural exchange and even to use the same word appropriation in the terms that something that can really connect us because 
if we start falling in love with cultures of different like countries or regions and we incorporate them deeply in our own life, then how would we even think about wars with those countries? It's like, it's yeah. such a powerful tool can be for connecting. But then, of course, there are different situations and different uh, uh, usage, let's say. <laughs> so that's one topic. But in general, like even this idea of, oh, you, you're from this country, you're from this culture, you need to stick there. And uh, how dare you uh, explore or how dare you take it a little bit further than just uh, exploration or interest to other country and how dare you do it. But then uh, we really miss out on this really, in my opinion, powerful tool of solving a lot of world's yeah. problems. <laughs> and, and, uh, and to me, it's something that is, um, you have to look at it from a very honest point of view. And uh, I'll give an example. I wear blue jeans. Everybody wears blue jeans. Blue jeans were invented in the United States. Am I culturally appropriating the workers of the 19th century in the U.S. because I'm wearing blue jeans? Of course not. Some people, of course, would say that it's the imperialist United States that is like putting their culture into the world. And there's a lot to say about that. But I think the reply will be, for example, me, a Brazilian guy, now living in Kiev and having like in Toronto so many interactions with Ukrainians, even before I came here, and learning how to love and take a look and learn about the the, the music from Ukraine, for example, just to take it out of uh, of um, of Arabic music for a second. But there was, and I learned this a couple of weeks ago, like uh, when when I when we went to do this uh, painting class, right? And I was just thinking about it that I never really considered, but Next to the city where I was not born in, but where I live most of my life, Curitiba, there is a big, 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 uh, one of the diasporas of people from Ukraine actually went to the south of Brazil in the, like, many centuries ago. And those people, they even speak like old Ukrainian there. And they even do those kinds of paintings that people, like, still learn how to do here. So, because I was there, now I can do, like, although I'm not descendant of Ukrainians, but now I live in Ukraine, I'm a temporary resident of Ukraine, can I now play, play along? And so that's the, the to me, the, the people are missing, if they're, I know it's just now, the craziness about, like, this subject of cultural appropriation, but if we are compassionate, and if we are, I would say, think a little bit deeper, uh, I always just to take it out of, for, for example, uh, like, for, like from music or, or from fashion, for example, photography. We use electronic devices. I use a camera that was, in, that was produced in Japan using technology invented by Germans, using electricity, and uh, that was basically developed by French and American people. And maybe the Serbians can throw in too with the Tesla, right? I think it's Serbian. And... Um, it takes the whole world to have the things that we have at our disposal all around. And to that point, not to beat it to death, but one of the beautiful quotes that um, it's like um, one of the big mantras for me is this uh, from um, Basquiat. It's, he's this uh, 17th century French like philosopher, economist. And he said, if products don't cross borders, soldiers will. Mm. Right. And I think that's the same thing for culture. If culture doesn't cross borders, 
which is the thing that makes us fall in love and understand other, other cultures, that's where the problem starts. That's where the xenophobia, that's where all the people like talking bad about immigrants, about this, about that. Like that's where the people that they, they don't realize how international all our culture is. And then, of course, it's not like everything is gray and everything is the same. There are differences between, for example, the music of Egypt to the music of Lebanon and the influence on Berber music, for example, when you go to Northern Africa and all those things. So even the things that people would say that it's all oh, this is Arabic, it's already a mix of things. And it was even canonized when the Turkish Ottoman Empire took over all those places and started even incorporating things like into, into Arabic music that became, let's say, classical. But it came from this mix of cultures. So there is something to be said about being compassionate and being understanding of cultures. But at the same time, I think it's a human right. And I think, just to come back to belly dance and Arabic music, it's um, I think it's the best example that I know of today in the world that showcases how your love for a, a culture can influence your life so much that you see this blonde German girl or you see this Indian girl or you see this Brazilian girl or you see this Ukrainian girl or Ukrainian guy or Brazilian guy or this American dude in the middle of the, the, the Midwest in the US and they're all doing balladins, and they're all learning about Egypt, and they're all learning about Lebanon, and they're all learning about the intricate details of uh, Rock's Sharky and all those things. And to me, the more we have things like that, that's a, the beautiful, powerful thing that I think we're only scratching the surface in terms of the appreciation of balladins around the world. It's a gift in disguise. Mm. I never thought about this, uh, about balladins from this point of view. Like, I mean, specifically from this angle. I told you I would tell something you didn't know. <laughs> um, well, uh, I also know <laughs> that in the area of photography, you did quite an interesting and also contradicting, for some people, project uh, called uh, the, art, the art series called The Orientalist. So can you tell a little bit about it? Okay, so first... Um, uh, just to go back a tiny little bit, so as the same time that I was doing my master's and I was doing, uh, that I said, it's like in art and design in Toronto, it's 2009, 10, 11, uh, actually 10 when I started the program, um, and I was playing drums with, um, with uh, Suleiman learning how to play, and then two things happened at the same time. I had one experimental class at my university, the only good thing that happened during my master's, but uh, like the only useful thing that happened, but it's a different story, uh, that they said, go and play around with an area of your interest, but it's not your main focus. Back then, my main focus was like design, interactive design for iPads and things like that. So I want to go and give a shot to studio photography. And they want to create an image that is inspired by, in that case, it was like a character in science, Hypatia, and I wanted to create that in studio. So I wanted to create a character. At the same time, when I was working, and that's why I mentioned in the story, I was working on it. Suleiman, my drumming teacher, he calls me and he says, I need a backup drummer for a production from Arabesque. Can, do you want to do it? And then I said, 
Whoa, he says, it's going to be a commitment every weekend for the next few months. We're going to get together and they have to get you up to speed. And you are a backup drummer. You cannot make mistakes. Do you want to learn it? Do you want to do it? I thought for a while and I had like my master's, this new thing I was going to do. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm doing new things. I want to do it. I will do it. So I did that. And then I did my first studio photograph and I fell in love with photography to the point that I rejected all the stuff that I was doing in design and I said I want to do in my master's. Uh, it was a master's in art, media and design, so it was very free what you could do in your program. It was an arts-based uh, program. Um, I want to focus in creating characters, creating these worlds in photography. Then, since I was doing my drumming, I, I needed to have like people to take photos of. And I thought there were all these visions and these beautiful like images that dancers like to create. Like the belly dancers like to create this like oriental inspired like uh, images. And then I thought, oh, I think it would be cool to, to work with that. And it would be like a safe place for me as like a photographer to learn because I could take them to the studio and do some photos. And if it didn't work, like no harm done, but I could learn. So I started taking photos of belly dancers. And then on the side later, after I started doing some that people started liking, then I started like offering my services in Toronto for people that would like to uh, do photos of belly dance. And then that interaction with dancers and creating this world got my interest in fashion photography and fine art photography. And that became my obsession together with drumming, as you know well. And one of the things that happened was, and you were like, I'll have to put you in the story because you're part of it. After we were together, um, we were doing some creative shots for you, right? And a couple of, um, I guess a year before, even before we met, I was looking into this Orientalist paintings. So it's this Western uh, painters from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century that they went into the Middle East and they sometimes they would even not go to the got Middle East. Inspired and, oh yeah, by the inspired by, sometimes they would go, like there are a bunch of them yeah, that actually yeah. went, and a few of them never went, but they were always inspired the way that I saw it. It's like when Napoleon went to Egypt and they brought those artists to uh, with Napoleon and all those people to do those beautiful drawings like we have here at home of uh, those sketches of Egypt, which was being revealed, uh, rediscovered right for the first time because uh champollion knew had the rosetta stone and he was cracked the code of um of uh, hieroglyphs and i think the because of the times too the aesthetics was very much related right of the orientalist paintings and that always fascinated me it's like you discovering this other world through the lens of a foreigner let's say, because oil paintings was primarily back then um, like developed by Europeans. And of course it happened, it existed in other places, but the great masters, like since the Renaissance, they were there. And the thing that I was, that I thought was so amazing and interesting was, oh, it wouldn't be so cool to do something related to those Orientalist paintings from the point of view of the aesthetics. So what I decided to do when we were doing that photo, we we're doing the Persian Palace in Toronto. We're doing some belly dance and Persian dance photos for you. And I remember taking a photo of you and then I said, oh, that's, we can make a series out of this, right? Because it had, by chance, the way that I lit it, it had that um, feel. 
feel. Yeah, it had that aesthetics that I was looking for. And as we were like beginning our relationship and you knew a lot of dancers and it happened that we were going to travel to a bunch of places too. So I said, okay, I want to create a photography series inspired by Orientalist paintings. And it would feature all these musicians and dancers from all over the world that they're putting these costumes, right? They're creating this scene. They're creating this um, worlds, these fantasy worlds, sometimes rooted in history, sometimes rooted in fantasy, as all art is, right? Sometimes they're all about our uh, longings. They are an archetypical idea of what a dancer is or a musician is or what a scene is. And so I decided to start that series and then like you helped me a lot with it. But it was one of those things that, okay, I have a whole series. I have a, and even something that I'm even thinking of like, how can I continue that in a way? Because it's something that can, I'm sure I will get back to it. And what I decided to do with that, story, that thing was also to have this... Um, little like they call in English Easter eggs, right? It's like, oh, there is this drum that is recurring or this character that appears in many photographs. And it's not in your face. They're just there for the people that like would care to pay attention to, to the photographs. But just to mention this, uh, like the controversy that you, that you mentioned, that it has to do with the cultural appropriation angle of it. It's just the times where we are. Um, but I remember, what am I going to call the series? And I thought, oh, the Orientalist. First, because I was actually thinking of two things. One, it was about inspired by Orientalist paintings. It's the name of the kind of, um, of painting. Uh, and also, I was so inspired by the travels that uh, Brazilian author Paulo Coelho did in The Alchemist. So I like this idea of this play of the Orientalist, the Alchemist, but this idea of there is the Orientalist as being a person. Mm -hmm. And I was even thinking of all the all the photographers that, it, that lived in the beginning of the 20th century, on the beginning of photography, that they were taking photos of the dancers and the musicians and the peasants and all those people that were living in that back then the Ottoman Empire, which comprised of Turkey and a lot of the Middle East. And you see those photographs and it's so interesting because they are posed. They are like even for the nature of the cameras that they had, you have to hold your pose for a while, right? While we're taking the photos. And I thought me as a person that is not from that culture, I'm not European, I'm Brazilian, but me going into that culture from that exploration that is this combination of history and fantasy. And not only my fantasy, because I collaborated with, what, like 50 dancers and musicians from, I guess, a dozen countries. Yeah, it was a big series. Yeah, I don't it, know how many shots in general it yeah, has right like, now. Like More than 40. 40, 50, 40 yeah. in total. Like, and they're all like connected. And you have people from Germany, from Brazil, from the Middle East, from uh, Russia, from Bulgaria, from the... I think we have the United States, Spain, have people from all these places. And they're all inspired by Bellinus and created these scenes together. And I'm very proud of it. And But just to go back to this idea of the say, controversy, there was one person, one person, that told me that they were offended by the use of the word Orientalist. And I was trying to, because what they told me in the context of North America, sometimes people talk that the word Oriental sometimes refers to people in um, uh, like China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Japan. It has that con connotation of the Orient 
as um, and it can have like some racist connotations to it. But what I told like this person was like, well, I the intention I have is to talk about Orientalist paintings, which have a very specific connotation. And I even said, even in Egypt, they use Oriental dance as the name of the thing. So yeah. who am I to argue with Egyptians the way that they call it? Right. And then there is even the things that I know you've you've touched on the Baladans podcast podcast before, but like uh, the in certain places, belly dance would be the correct term, right? And in certain places, uh, it's better to say oriental dance. Belly dance is sort of uh, denigrating or something. So it's you can't win. If you're going to be the word the police and not talk about the intent, it makes no sense. And half of the world use like even as I mentioned, like in 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 Egypt or in Lebanon and all those places, they talk about Oriental dance. So I don't really see a problem. It is just like an unfortunate problem, but people are going to be offended no matter what, right? And the, the, the example that I always say is like, if you're deeply, let's say, Christian religious, you, and I know that a lot of dancers have this problem, like they keep like, oh, how much skin can you show, right? Can you use a bra to, to perform? Right? Oh, for some people, it's super uh, conservative. Oh, sorry, it's super, uh, what's the word? Inappropriate to be dancing the way that for da belly dancers is like a normal thing and part of the culture and part of the joy of creating your costume and doing all those things. So um, that, at least to me, it was it, it spoiled the fun for a couple of days, but just got back to it and created beautiful photos, which is what I wanted to do. What was the most uh, memorable shooting process hmm not the final photo but the shooting process shooting process uh well probably probably the one in cyprus oh wow yeah. <laughs> that one okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> so probably the most um memorable of course every photo has a story has a uh let's say every every photo has um disruption point has something that oh my god this terrible thing might happen or might have happened uh, usually it's not the case but there's always some drama related to a photo something will go wrong and it's part of the photographer's job to uh, deal with it so in that specific shoot we went to Cyprus for um, Sylvan and Stella festival in Cyprus uh, uh, it's a Cyprus uh, Cairo, Cairo by night, night Cyprus yeah very cool and I was taking photos of the um, some dancers there and I went to I did like five or six different shoots it's an amazing place like uh, Cyprus beautiful beautiful island again talking about uh, just one little side note about that Cyprus has been conquered by since the Phoenicians and then the Greeks and um, Ottomans and British people. So if you see in Cyprus, there will be influences from so many different cultures. Just one of those examples. Uh, but in Cyprus, we did this shoot with uh, Aida Bogomolova. And it was two photos that we wanted to do with her. And she was very graciously like agreed to be a part of the series. And we wanted to do this like angelic seen at those rock of Aphrodite and we went there in the south of the island and we did a shoot and on the way up and I was driving and just one detail about that in Cyprus in the island you drive as in Britain you, you drive on the right side so I had to do the the stick shift on the other side it's all very let's say um, 
interesting. And there's like this rains that happen out of the blue that you have to simply stop, wait for the rain to pass and continue driving, all those things. But I remember that we went to, to the north to do the second photo and it was dark. It was going to be in an abandoned city there and it was completely pitch black and we were doing the scene, doing the shoot. We put the um, uh, car lights so that we could see what was going on. And suddenly there was this smoke coming out of the car as we were doing the shoot. We, we got the photos that we wanted, but then on the way back, I had to go super careful to try to find the way back to the hotel. We had no internet, so good that I downloaded the map. And, we were going to travel that morning out of us. Uh, Not that morning. It was completely insane. Yes. I, I was curious about your the most memorable shoot. But it was just to put in a perspective. At the end of the day, after the whole day of like already going on a different part of the island, driving, uh, being in the water and etc. But for the second part of the shoot, just imagine we are in the middle of nowhere. There is abundant ruins of something, some historical sites, not person around, at least visible to us, completely dark, no lights, no internet connection, two out of three phones available died because the battery stopped. We have a car with a smoke going out of a car right in black the middle of the show, black smoke, and we have a flight that we need to leave to the airport in two hours. <laughs> so we still need to get to the hotel, <laughs> get our bags and go to the airport. It was also freezing cold. It was yeah. insane. I remember the photos are great, but I just remember the process. is like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things that... Um, uh, two things about that, like just to come back to the... like. Maybe something like valuable to 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 dancers besides the fun of knowing about photo shoots, uh, and the cool thing is that Ida was super sports, super professional, oh, yeah, and yeah. super great. So that shout out to her. But the the cool thing that the that I it reminded me is that oh, whenever I see those photos, I don't remember that process. I don't remember it at all. <laughs> like I, I I see the photo that I took and I see how I processed it and I see how they look and I see what I liked. And over time as a photographer, I mean, so you always remember how you took the photo. You always remember the context, but that's not what gets to you. Like, and even like I remember doing some shoots, I think in Greece, and I remember I slept because I was doing photos for the festival, right? Uh, and... Uh, uh, in, in, in Ceres, I think it was, yes. And then, um, so I would do photos all, the whole night and then edit a little bit. And then at the morning, I would go and do uh, a photo shoot for a dancer, for example. And I remember I was so tired, so tired in one shoot that, um, that, that I was doing. I think, I don't think it was Marina Shishkova, maybe? I don't remember, but it was like... So, I was photographing one dancer and I remember so tired, I was, I, like I went through and I, I did it and then I really loved the photos, like it's part of my belly dance portfolio now and I had to really remember that I was tired, so you, but at the same time you remember, it's like you're never proud of the easy stuff, that's a phrase by Pendulette. He's a magician guy, very cool guy and he said, he said this, like you're never proud of the easy stuff. If you got something easy, mm. 
it's okay. Maybe you feel some people even feel like imposter syndrome, like oh, it's so easy or that. Like, but the things that you're really proud of, or the things that you really stuck with, or at least that they had some sort of ordeal that make you like, oh wow, I did this right. Whatever I do in life, I have done this thing right. And uh, I think that has to do a lot of this idea that sometimes we think that we can't do certain things. And if you remember, like you went. If you lived long enough, you probably took some risks and you did some stuff that you can't believe you actually did. The problem is, like with like in this case of like an interview, usually we don't we only think of our lives for ourselves. If you do like a journal or if you do anything like that, but you don't really remember when you were a beginner, or you don't really, as you're saying, like, oh, in you know, 2007, I had no idea I was going to be, like, working as a photographer and a musician and have, like, a world music band and have all those things. I had no idea. I could very easily had stayed in, in Brazil and being, a, um, like, a, just working the government and being unfulfilled, but, like, there were all sorts of ordeals that if you look backwards, like, oh, okay, you actually did some cool stuff. One funny thing about this thing about uh, how people perceive drummers, just to give another um, interesting uh, idea about drummers being like sometimes very tense or very nervous or very worried or like, like knowing, for example, Suleiman, that is fantastic drummer, has played with so many dancers. I remember him being super nervous at the beginning of our shows, for example. Mm. And I remember my first inkling, and I'll connect all those things together, but like my first inkling of being uh, like seeing what he sees, because I was being backup drummer to this whole orchestra, this Arabic orchestra that I was lucky enough to play. And he said, oh, do you want to sit here? Because he was at the edge and he was the lead drummer. And as you know, the lead drummer is usually the general, or at least he tries to be the maestro of the band because everybody's the chaos and someone needs to... Right, because yeah. so many dancers probably uh, have a questions. Okay, this uh, uh, Arabic bands, how do they navigate uh, when to play, when to start, uh, how, when to stop, etc. Because in Western orchestras, you have a... Uh, My, yeah, like a conductor. Conductor. Like yeah. in Arabic bands, you don't have. But then in this case, you're just basically describing that lead drummer will take the role of conductor and yeah. signal in his own way to the whole band, okay, now we're transitioning to this part of the song, or yeah. now it's going to happen this way. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But just to finish this idea of like mm -hmm. his thing, and I sat there and I saw... You have all these people and they're all looking into different directions and he has his notes and he has to take a look at the dancers and he has all that. It's like, no wonder he gets really, really mad if I make mistakes and if I take him out of tempo, me as the backup drummer and the other guy um, that was a cat and player with us, uh, if we throw him off, if we are not a nice bass for him, we can take the whole band out. Mm. And that's where his like fear came from. But then, of course, very professional guy. He just goes, so that doesn't go away. But what I was going to mention was one thing that uh, Yasmina Ramsey told me, she's the director of the Arabesque Orchestra back when I was there and back when Suleiman was there. And one thing she told me one day that I was helping her in one um, of her belly dance classes that I was accompanying her. 
And she told me this thing that she said, oh, Pedro, like, it's incredible because even when you make, like, I remember even on the first gala shows that you were playing, when Suleiman would go and tell you, just improvise, you would go for it. And sometimes you would make these horrible mistakes and you would do, like, the things that you were beyond your, like, uh, level. She was basically doing a jab, but, like, but she was saying, but you always went for it. You always did. You never choked. You never like not done it. You did the best that you could, and uh, you and and you you always seemed you, and you were always so calm about it and so brave. And I was like, who is this person you're talking about? <laughs> like I was terrified. I was completely terrified. Like when I was like going to do those solos. So every drummer, if every every artist, if he's being honest. He has those doubts and those things. So that's just a thing for just to go back to that idea from this. But as you were asking now about like uh, the role of the, the lead drummer for the band, one of the great things, and that's the other thing that I love about Arabic music, is that sometimes you have the singer being the main person and the guy that says, okay, now we're going to go into this song. I want this feel. I want this thing like, like with bands, very common. Sometimes you have... The, let's say the senior musician being the main guy, like, uh, for example, in Toronto, we had Bassam, that he, um, he was the oud player and the singer. So he would choose which music, especially with his knowledge of, uh, of Arabic music, he would choose which songs we're going to do and sort of like the vibe that we're, we're doing. But the drummer is the guy that leads you into the music. So for dancers that don't know, like when you're playing uh, Arabic music, usually, as you probably notice, uh, like Arabic musicians, they play by feel. They don't play by reading notes for the most time, most part. They Sometimes they can read, sometimes they can't read, but they try to do by ear and they try to basically let the thing go. That's the other thing that is so beautiful about Arabic music is that We'll talk about this later, but it's like this improvisation <laughs> element of it, like that one song will never be the same as yeah. the next one. And that's a beautiful thing in my book. But um, so the, the job of the lead drummer is to, for example, you probably heard when a drummer goes, tack, tack, dum, 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 and then the, the thing starts, right? Or, but there is a lot of things that happen. You probably are too focused on your dancing to pay attention to it, but... All sorts of hilarious things happen when you are uh, playing, like depending on the context. Sometimes you're in the theater and it's all nice, so you have like a set list and it's all correct, and so you're just playing. But sometimes when you're in a restaurant, the um, violin player decides he wants to go to the washroom, uh, this person makes a mistake, this guy needs to retune his instrument because there is one uh, note that went missing, but you're in the middle of like a big dubke song, what the hell are you gonna do? Or this musician, wants to go into a taxine because he's really feeling it. So the drummer sort of like gives the, the cues for the musicians. Okay, now let's go into this part. Now let's go into that part. It's a very organic thing. There is no real hierarchy. There is a hierarchy on the band, on each individual band. Sometimes it will be the Rick player. Sometimes it will be the, the lead singer. Sometimes it will be the oud player. But the lead drummer usually is the guy that has the pulse of the music, right? And that's a very specific thing that happens in Arabic music. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's all sorts of things that are happening on the background. And sometimes you see like, why is this uh, 
this happened so many times, like when you were playing, like playing for a dancer and it's a taxim. And uh, let's say that she's really connecting with, let's say, the oud player or the violin player. And they're doing the taxim and everybody's like doing a drone sound in the background. We were just holding a little beat, like a shiftatelli or a wahda. And let's say sometimes the oud player really gets into playing it. And now you, the drummer, as a lead drummer, you're always looking at the audience mm -hmm. to see if they're having fun. To see, okay, are they paying attention? What's next? Oh, this other person come in. Oh, now people want to dance. Let's let's change this thing. And I remember, like, um, in when I was a backup drummer, like with Arabesque, it was one of those things, like that. The one musician would really get like in sync with the dancer, and then she would doing the same. But okay, we gotta keep this moving. So we would like do this tech, 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 just to get this feel, so that okay, let's grow, get into the next song, and uh, no, 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 not done yet, still want to do it, and other like more funny things that happen in my band, for example, like in, like in our band, like the Bulldog Ensemble, that a musician would get into this beautiful taxine, but they basically have to come back to the original um, makam, right, and our kanun player was having like some problems, like, and then she just looks at me like, uh, like, what can you do? And then I looked at uh, my oud player, uh, Demetrius Petsalakis, and then he goes like, okay, I'll take over, and then he goes. So there's all these dynamics that are happening with the band, and sometimes you, like, it's not even about what you're doing or trying to make the best for you, but there is all this drama and technical things that are going on that usually the drummer, we are in the kitchen, we have to make the plates look good and you have to go put out fires and do all sorts of things. <laughs> Yeah, so true. Well, uh, while being also a drummer and photographer, you kind of added uh, a third job for yourself. And you uh, added the job of being the husband of ballet dancer. <laughs> and I know that this topic is uh, sometimes a struggle for many dancers because uh, very often guys don't understand ballet dance, not even as a profession, but even just as an interest or a hobby. And uh, quite a lot of girls need either to uh, stop belly dancing or it even to face the decision of, okay, what's to do next? Do I want really to pursue dance further or even continue my, my hobby? Or do I want to uh, get in a relationship and uh, be uh, like in a, quotes, normal, uh, like life, family, etc.? So, how do you feel about your third job of being a husband of ballet dancer? <laughs> well, it's a job. <laughs> uh, it is. But <laughs> no, so how I feel about that. Well, first, I, especially like for the last, what, four years, I guess, like that you got so many, literally 300 gigs in one year, like. That you had like all these shows right so i had the opportunity not only to be husband of belly dancer but actually assistant so I'd drive you to the place that's what i'm and, saying uh, yeah, it's a job <laughs> so like and uh, seeing how those dancers they're, they're so beautiful and they're smiley and they have like the hair and the makeup and they're dancing and then they go into the change room and they become this crazy demons right <laughs> they're like i'm putting the pin and this and you're sweaty and it's like 
But I can't see that from the stage. You really have to be the husband of belly dancer to know this thing. Like, it's really funny. Like, I remember all the first times that I took you to, to a show. But and I uh, took you to the show. Right. It was me. Yes. <laughs> and I was helping you because you had to put a shamadan, I think. Like, uh, so it was like two songs. It's just two entrances yeah. on the show. Yeah. And you are doing one that's like a regular belly dance set, I think, or just Persian belly dance. I can't remember. But it was like some sort of belly dancing. And then you would go afterwards with the Shamadan. And you really change fast. And they really wanted a fast change. So I was there to help you. Like three, four minute change at yeah. most. <laughs> and you came in, it's like, oh, to me, it's like, Yana, this elegant girl that does the dances. And then she goes on the back and then all this volcano trying to like do the changes and do the stuff and i know that it's uh into me like as especially in photography like whenever things are going let's say that there is like a, a something tragic or something has to be done like anytime there is like some even even in drumming or like with bands whenever something is very um let's say what's the word tensed yeah, like the, there is some sort of disaster about to happen. I get very quiet and very and very chill, right? And you get the other way around. You're usually very chill, but then when it's like, ah, this one. So it's just ways of doing it. But that's just a little inside joke for, for people to see. Like, a yeah, husband of Bella Dancer driving them around, doing like photos, videos, and uh, help me change putting shamadans and uh, pinning things and costumes and uh, ironing fan veils and things like that. But... Well, so you touched two things. One is uh, on this thing that is a reality for many dancers, right? That, uh, that there is jealousy, right? There's husbands that do not understand that they are not there to pick up guys. They are there for an infinity of reasons that have most of the time little to do with uh, their fears, right? It's usually like the belly dance community. It's usually, uh, for the most part, um, even like majority of people is, are females, right? Now we have a much more uh, like male belly dancers and, and that's great, but they it's usually like girls that want to have fun, right? And they want to, to, to dance and perform when they are in an amateur setting and you have professionals that that's their job, that's their life, right? That's their passion. So a lot of um, uh, husbands I feel are very, and I've seen this like unfair. It's like, oh, you like the girl and you probably even saw her dancing. Oh, but now that she's with you, you can't, she can't dance anymore. It's a very alien thing for me. And then of course, like I had this the other way around, right? Before, before we were together, right? Uh, I was in a relationship that the person was very, very jealous in principle, right? It, oh, because you're this drummer and you are this uh, like photographer and it's around these girls and all that. So I can feel the pain of um, like a dancer that has this, this problem because when you are in it, it's not about that. So like in the, the problem, the, the reality of it, at least in my view, it's like if a person is going to be... Um, like if a person is going to cheat or is going to like ruin a relationship it will happen no matter what like it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter like and the worst thing like 
for, for example, a husband that, let's say that the girl really wants to do belly dance, for example, and the guy is because of his insecurities, again, we're coming back to those, uh, to those things, because of his insecurities, he's afraid he's going to lose her, so he's going to cut off her dreams. What will that happen in like five years or 10 years? What kind of resentment there is going to be if you don't trust your partner to let them like explore the, the life that they want to, to have? And of course, to be fair, like being like husband of belly dancer, like when you go to shows, when it's not uh, like sometimes a respect, we had the, the fortitude that most people were very, like for the most part, over the what? five years we performed together or we've been in this context together, most audience members are very respectful. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there is the guy that comes and wants to put money on your bra or like they're very disrespectful to dancers and things like that. That happens and that's terrible. But I don't think the solution for that is for the husband to cut the wings out of her um, significant other. So in at least in my experience, having had something that was like had a lot of jealousy before and with us like with me like husband of validance i can't remember one time i got jealous like i got pissed because like the guy's like drunk coming closer and like this kind of stuff like come on but i wouldn't say that i ever felt like uh, jealous right so and in the same way like the other way around too right i don't like you helping photo shoots like i'm so there are like especially now in key in in ukraine we probably should touch about like the, the idea of competitions that i had to learn how to do one minute drum solos <laughs> but um like i play for hundreds of dancers right so it's uh, it's not a thing so um i find that um first being a couple that is interested in the same um, art form, right? In a way, like I'm more into the music element of it and you are more into the dance element, but they of course cross pollinate, but it's a great thing. And one of the things that like, that I would recommend to having seen even other uh, husbands of belly dancers that I know that are like successful in their relationship is for the guy, of course, every relationship has their own dynamic. So who am I to give advice? Like, that's not my goal. But things to try, right, with your husband. Like, if he is not really into it, uh, maybe he will want to go through the lens of um, doing, like, drumming, for example. Or maybe he wants to learn how to drum. Maybe he wants to learn how to play another instrument. Maybe he wants to learn photography or video. He can go with you to, to the events and take photos and take videos for that. Maybe he can do some of the logistics of the, the thing, right? It's, it's something that you can do together. The other thing that I would recommend against that is the dichotomy is that if he is not interested, give him his space. Just to be very, let's say, uh, cliche, but if he is into having his game night or his fishing night, or if he is into whatever hobby, I don't know, a boat or whatever thing he likes, he is not necessarily trying to get you into that world with him, or maybe he is, who knows, but maybe that's something that is for you. And I think it's a very important thing to have, like, even though we, I'm like husband of belly dancer, like my endure, like wife of musician and the wife of a, of a photographer, I have my projects and my own things and you have yours and we have ours together too, right? So I think that's one of the, 
the cool things that uh, that happen. The other thing that I noticed with being husband of a belly dancer is that there is always something fun going on, right? Like uh, there is always like the costume that wants to buy, the like event that you want to see, and you see, try to see uh, the. I certainly became much more aware of like uh, costumes and uh, the struggles of dancers and even for music, like knowing what you pay attention to as a dancer has helped me think of music in a different way too, right? So anyway, those are my thoughts of being a husband <laughs> of ballet dancer. It's fun. Well, I guess uh, talking about the topic of relationship, because I don't think we brought it up that often on the podcast uh, before, but uh, just adding also from a, a girl's uh, perspective on this issue because uh, um, I had encountered some people, some guys that uh, uh, really didn't consider, it was not even that not interested in balladance because that's totally fine, everyone has their own interest, like you don't need to uh, be, I don't know, involved 24-7 uh, with your partner in everything that you do uh, but there are situations that person is actively trying to get girl out of dance or expects or once you're in a relationship like are you seriously going on to continue this so that's a different topic that's a different story and that of course comes from insecurities i guess a lot that you mentioned and also i guess another insecurity of uh, almost like feeling like ownership over the girl and like oh why would you showcase your body to other guys even if it's it's a dance performance it's not a showcase of body but that's how a lot of people see it through like a lot of guys see it through that lens is like oh why 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 my woman would be showcasing and let's say shaking her hips in front of other guys and that's a common uh Point, pinpoint for uh, many girls and dancers who may be in love with this person and want to have a relationship but then she's also in love either falling in love already deeply in love with ballet dance and then it's that conflict and struggle of uh, someone else's insecurities and her dreams or even if it, even if it's not like dreams like a you know, life uh, goal career or, or dreams but just interest but there's still this conflict in it, and that's a very sensitive sometimes issue to, to navigate and how to deal with it so it's not even about trying to interest them but even trying to explain why is it important for for me as a girl as a dancer as a just uh, being interested in dance you know, one thing i never really like i always thought about it but i never really uh, externalize it so probably to be a first for you to hear from me too but uh, that actually it's another super powerful and important element of belly dance, that it puts everyone in contact with what you consider the edge of being, let's say, uh, what's acceptable, what's acceptable in society. Even just to say something that I've seen many, many, many belly dancers like judging other belly dancers from their costume. All this shows too much. All this is this. So you fight to have your right to wear a bra, like decorated bra. But if the girl shows a little bit too much leg to your taste, you're judging her. So you as a dancer, you're doing exactly the same thing as all those people you despise that are doing that for you. And I mentioned that just not to do a jab at, at anyone specifically, but just to put, I never really thought about it that way, but 
that's the one of the beautiful powers and one of the mysteries, I think, that why this dance form is so interesting. Because whenever people say that it's not sensual, they're just being delusional. It has a lot of sensuality related to it, even to the like uh, untrained eye. But it's not, of course, all about that. It's about all this there is like thousands of years of history, and I'm talking about that from a societal point of view. How much can you show as a woman? In what context? Are you married? So it's okay, so it's not okay. Are you not married? So it's okay. Even from those guys' point of view, oh, when you start dancing, you're my wife now, so you can't do this, mm -hmm. right? So that shows their biases towards the art form and another point that i just uh, got my attention shows their approach of ownership of the female body and then that's an interesting contradictory because women for so many centuries fighting for their right to how they uh, use their body how they present their body how what they do with their body but at the same time pointing at each other's and even i remember right now not only from guys comes from this attitude I bet you probably remember we, we came back from, we were coming out of one of my gigs there. I was performing at a wedding, Egyptian wedding, for whom uh, belly dance it was a very important part of their wedding. But their wedding organizer, she was not Egyptian. She was not familiar much with that culture. And I remember we met with her after my performance near the exit of the building, like near, I don't know, somewhere. We crossed with her and I remember she looked at you and asked, oh my God, how do you allow your wife to do uh, like this kind of performances? <laughs> like, is it okay for you? And it was a Canadian woman who was, I was like, why do you think some guy should even tell me if it's okay for me or not okay to go and do this performance? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. I remember this time, day, but this time, but I don't remember what I said. But uh, I don't remember what I said. But yeah, it's um, and I've had like now that you mention it, I remember having like having like accompany you in events, and then when sometimes the the groom or the or some like some other guy in the the father of the bride or whatever, like oh you're the the husband and you let her do this, like uh, like judging me for that. But it's like you hired her for your event. What wedding for your wedding. wedding. What does it tell about you, right? And but that's the thing, like that's so fascinating about validance because it will put you in contact directly with those things, and I think it puts you in contact with this. At least in my, that's my point of view. Even that's something that took me a long time to um, to realize in terms of like for my photography, for example, because as you know, like I like a lot of uh, like. Uh, I like ethnic fashion, I like lingerie, I like all sorts of uh, kinds of, of photography. And one of the main themes that I was thinking of, like, as over time, like, uh, of, like, why am I drawn to that from a point of view of, like, besides the aesthetics, but from a message point of view, right? It's this idea that, for example, and that was, I was born into a family that had like my mom is a very strong woman and I have two very very strong sisters so I was always like of women as equals from the time that I was uh, like uh, that, that I was a kid and I remember even my mom like saying there are certain things I do as a woman 
like breastfeeding and uh, having babies. The rest I do as a human being. So I always saw them eye to eye in, in that way. And one of the things that I always thought, because my parents were like from this hippie generation of like, why are you judging how people dress, for example? I always had so strong in me, now that I think about it, I never really related to belly dance, but um, I remember in the Minister of Science and Technology, for example, we had to wear suits and ties and all these terrible things. And I remember that my intern, she was 19 at the time, and she decided to paint her hair, dye her hair red. And the, the boss, who was a woman, on Woman's Day, said that, oh, she looks very, she was all dressed in black because she was sort of goth. She was presentable work style, but she had a very specific look. And then she said, oh no, so she's not going to this woman's event, uh, you go or this other person goes. And I remember saying like, oh, so a woman is telling another girl how she should dress and what kind of uh, hair she should have on Women's Day, which we're supposed to celebrate the empowerment of women on all those things. So I always thought that gnarly. And the thing like related to, to belly dance and things that like on, on my own journey, like uh, thinking way back, like I remember my mom like talking about like, why does it matter? Like, why should I dress for your standards? Mm. Right? It's like, I will dress the way that I want. Like, and... If you see over time, right, it's like you have um, even like this poster of Elizabeth Taylor when she put this, uh, when she was in Suddenly Last Summer, this movie in the 1950s, end of 1950s, I think. And she's wearing this two-piece uh, bathing suit, right? It's like an old-style bikini, which today is considered super like retro and, uh, and uh, even conservative. But back then... Having a two-piece and not a one-piece was scandalous. Only her could do or Marilyn Monroe and all those people. So I always see, now that I think about it, like how my work in photography and even my appreciation of belly dance from even the costume point of view, because it's it talks about that, like how you as a woman could decide what kind of thing you can wear and challenge. And you will point and you will see exactly where the lines are. You even see belly dancers complaining about uh, like burlesque dancers or erotic dancers. So it's like now you're judging other girls on the same vein that other people judge your dance form, mm. right? So anyway, the way that I see it, uh, it's like instead of complaining, you do by example, right? So I think like even, for example, for this lady and other people that are like, oh, how can you let your wife do this, this and that? Instead of me being mad at the person and saying, how dare you say this or how dare you say that and get into this, um, to be honest, boring thing that happens today that people are always outraged, maybe we can try to show by example, I don't let my wife do anything. She does whatever she wants, right? As I do whatever I want and we meet in the middle and we try to make each other happy and hopefully that will cancel any bad thing that we would do to each other but it's like i would never stop your pursuit of whatever you're trying to pursue and i know the opposite's the same and it's all by example even for example is it okay for a woman to wear this or that that clothes yes in my opinion always yes like, and I remember just to come back to that idea of the ministry, what I told my boss was that if you don't let my intern go to this event, I will put a red wig and I will go next time. Because, right? So 
anyway, so, but, like, uh, I think that's a very powerful thing. Like, people were talking, like, sort of, like, cheekily about uh, uh, Baladin's husbands and all these problems that I know they're very real that women go through. But it's that part is sort of like it's your challenge as a woman, as a lover, as a dancer to decide where you stand on those things. And no one can decide that for you. And that means you are a complete human being. You are the hero in your story. That's your adventure. And you decide, are you going to dance? Are you going to sacrifice your love or something like that for no one can tell you what to do mm-hmm. yeah, and i think it's a very good uh, reminder that we are heroes of our own stories and when we meet partners it's not for the sake of becoming part of their stories for the sake of combining two stories and writing a new book or a new chapter in those yeah. two separate books <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but sure. yeah yeah well i can only uh, wish that uh, other dancers to have a uh, supportive and uh, understanding <laughs> partner as I am lucky is uh, for sure and definitely and um, uh, well time flew by mm-hmm. we talked about so many things but we also didn't talk about, about so me, many yeah. things sorry I go into <laughs> rabbit holes yeah. well but um, maybe our listeners can uh, let me know if they want to hear <laughs> more from you soon <laughs> and if you should do part two of the interview anyway thank you for um, being a part of podcast now as our guest not mm-hmm. only as a um, behind-the-scenes support of all the projects that uh, people typically see me as a face of the project and think it's my project, but uh, in reality it's uh, um, 99% of them are ours and uh, uh, you're a big part of them all too. So thank you so much for that. But also thank you, f- sure, being a guest on our podcast and going into all of those um, sensitive and very... Uh, Topics that will be approached by different people in different ways and just uh, talking about that. And uh, um, so how was how was it been to be interviewed by your wife? Well, surprisingly <laughs> fun. It's uh, very much like, uh, uh, as you know, in the beginning of our relationship, we're talking about like the things about benefits and all that. So it just felt like us talking. So oh. not really an interview. So thank you. So it was not a police cross uh, cross examination. No. <laughs> Good. Well, she made me say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also will make you say to our listeners where you can follow your activities, both as drummer and as a photographer. Okay. So uh, uh, first, thank you for having me as uh, as your guest. Like uh, I'm, I'm so proud of you for doing this for like a hundred and something episodes. I'm really, you know, like it's people could have stopped doing it. That's one thing I learned from you. Like to oh, just she just keeps going and doing things. Like it just keeps going. It's really, really inspiring. Very cool. And um, well, people can find me at on Instagram at uh, Pedro Bonato with two T's dot Oriental. We will have links on show notes. That's for if you want to see my drumming and belly dance uh, photography work. If you want to see my fashion work, it will be at Pedro Bonato uh, on Instagram. And same thing on Facebook if you want to find me there. My website is Pedro Bonato, B-O-N-A-T-T-O, uh, dot com. That you'll see all the information. If you go to pedrobonato.com slash dance, there uh, people can find a couple of cool things. They can see my, fo- my photos. They can see the Oriental series that we talked about. There, I also put 
uh, link to a, a fairly like popular, like, you see people watching that, uh, seeing that uh, page all the time, uh, tips for belly dancers to get ready for photo shoots from choosing the concept, choosing your photographer, how to talk to the photographer, how to discuss uh, makeup, costumes, what to do on the day of the shoot, all things. I put a lot of thought into uh, giving dancers suggestions for that can also take a look at, we didn't even talk about it, but we have a World Music and Dance Ensemble yeah. that we started in Toronto and that will uh, continue. That's called the Blue Dot Ensemble. The Earth Scene from Far Away, this image from Carl Sagan, one of my favorite inspirations, that if you see the Earth from really far away, we are all in this small little dot these blue dots in the in the world, and uh, well, that's uh, and people can hit me up if they have questions, if they want a part two of this, <laughs> uh, if not, just uh, go check out my my drumming and stuff. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'll include all uh, links in the show notes. Uh, uh, so uh, that's gonna be uh, fun. Uh, to see uh, people's maybe questions for part two, uh, but uh, before we. Uh, Sum up. I want to ask you our signature question uh -huh. of the podcast. Okay. I know you'll be very much surprised by the question. <laughs> I know the question, but I haven't thought of uh, the, the answer. Well, I'm going to rephrase it too, because I'm going to put it in the music. You're not doing ballet dance, at least for now. At least that I'm aware of. <laughs> oh, night is young. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is, what makes you fall in love with Arabic music again and again, so you keep doing it for so many years? I reply to that even in the context of belly dance because I think it's uh, related like uh, what I like about them are very related um, well for belly dance it's the mystery the promise that you have whenever you go into a show and you see a beautiful performance and you see something new or you see something different or you see an old theme see this old song and how does this dancer will perform it I don't know how what she's gonna do I haven't seen her but because we share this love for Arabic music I think it's a very human thing that we get in this five minutes this chance to have contact real contact with another human being that's very cool that's always like something, whenever I feel like I had enough of this, like whatever, whenever I get back to like seeing shows or even performing for dancers, it's like, oh, you have this beautiful interaction with someone using all this history, all this fantasy, all these longings, all this history. And we're here together and we're performing and we're doing it and we don't know what's going to happen. Same thing with Arabic music. I can hear Entombri, or I can hear Lama Bada, or I can hear all the songs that we played or we learned. And that's the beauty in Arabic music, that people take pride of not playing the same way. I even remember many musicians saying like, no, but that's how he does it. Let me see how I do it. And that is also frozen in time. And that's one of the beautiful things about it. It's like the way that I will do a drum solo now will be different than I'll do 10 years from now. And it's different than I did five years ago. And I think that's such a unique thing in Arabic music. You see sometimes like in rock and roll, you see these uh, musicians that they're, they're bare on their 70s 
and they're playing exactly the same song they did in the 70s, exactly the same way for people to play it, to listen in exactly the same way again. So it's fine, do whatever you want. But to me, that's one of the beautiful things in Arabic music. And the second thing, more specifically to belly dance, is this idea that we've been talking along all the time, that is, I think there is something deeply human and the beginning of something really beautiful in the world of this new world culture, this new world mythology, this culture that you can be in Bali, and open your belly dance school. And you don't have to go do Balinese dance if you don't want, or you can, or you can incorporate both. And you can go to the south of Brazil and there will be a belly dance academy. And there will be a belly dance academy in Serbia and in Uganda and in Egypt and everywhere. And it becomes this sisterhood and this brotherhood of people that are sharing a culture from one place they are honoring the tradition and they're taking it further by creating new things. And I think there's something really powerful about this. And I think if we had this for more cultures around the world, this exchange of ideas and falling in love with it, I think it would be a better place. And also finally, about why coming back to it again and again, it's music that has echoes of the beginning of civilization. Wanting or not, like with world or Arabic music and with belly dance, even though some aspects of it can come from a few centuries ago, sometimes from a few decades ago, sometimes you know the girl that invented a certain move, but there is something ancient there. It's based on folklore, it's based on older traditions. The music is old. The, you get Sumerian texts, Sumerian from what today is Iraq, and you see instruments, you see drums, you see string instruments that resemble an oud. So I think there's hints of the beginning of civilization in this. And that's why I always come back to it, because there is always a mystery. There is always something there that you haven't seen. So that's why I love it. And that's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. What stops you from practicing more at home? Typically, it's... Uh time, space, money, low motivation, or maybe frustration with what exactly to do. How about solving all this with Yana Dance Club? Don't have time? Each practice drill is only 20 minutes long. It's a complete workout with a special focus on different technique element. And even if you do the suggested bare minimum, you still will see results and it won't take you more than 20 minutes per session. Have limited space? All drills are actually designed for practice in your home, so it's literally a no-brainer. Struggle with motivation and discipline? How about making your training fun with monthly challenges, cool bonuses and support from a like-minded community of dancers? I promise you'll start looking forward to your practices very soon. Concerned about money? Did you know that the membership starts with only $8 per month? It's less than a regular group class in your local studio, all the cost of two Starbucks coffees. But in this case, you actually invest those $8 in a whole month of your dance training. 
And finally, no more frustration on how exactly to approach a training at home and what to do. You can use those drills as a warm-up or to get into a groove before your longer individual sessions or actually as a complete 20-minute ballet dance workout of the day. Simply follow the suggested plan for your weekly training and push your dance skills to the next level. You can find more information about Yana Dance Club at yanadanceclub.com and start your 7-day free trial today. Once again, visit yanadanceclub.com for more information and to start your weekly ballet dance training today.